Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by me, Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and Jer Swigart. And as always, we're going to ease into this week's conversation with a question of the week. And it's a hard-hitting question, and one that I will judge you thoroughly on your answer. <laughs> what was the first concert that you ever went to? So not 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 most memorable, not best. No, first. no, 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 no. First. Mm. Wow. I think I got it. This also ages us, I feel like. All right, John, go for it. Well, uh, I remember well. It was uh, <laughs> Steve Green. Oh, Steve Not Green. Keith Green. Is that People Need the Lord guy? Steve Green. People yeah, Need the Lord. People what? do need Can the Lord, Can you sing Jared. us one of his most popular I songs? Honestly, I dug so deep to just come up with the first concert that you required us to do. I can't remember a single song. Oh. I just know it was Steve Green. I don't think I know who that is. I'm going to have to Google it. I mean, he was one in a vast chorus of white men who were prolific <laughs> Christian singers in the <laughs> late 80s. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, have, I, can, I can picture the room and I can picture the name and that's about as much as I got for you. I mean, I'm not far from that. I mean, if I think like, I remember when I was probably eight going to one of those big Christian music festivals. Mm. Um, it was called Jesus Northwest out in Gorge, Washington. Ooh, sounds um, awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. But as far as like first, like sit down, you know, like venue concert, it was Amy Grant. And I have no regrets. Yeah. An Amy Grant concert would be like a like enter and a take your seat and sit down. Yeah. I imagine. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Until baby, is that a, baby. Is that a concert? <laughs> would that be a is concert? It, or is that more of a recital? <laughs> no way! It's totally a concert. Okay. I had like dances to her songs. Could you get up, or yeah. did you have to stay seated? <laughs> I'm trying to remember if it was this. I'm sure it was a seated. Mm. There's no way you're staying seated for baby, baby. No, I'm sure I did not stay seated for that. But it's a classic. Yeah, Holy that smokes, is a classic. What about you, Jer? Well, I can't remember which was first, so I'm just going to briefly mention both. The <laughs> one would be Toby Keith. Uh, oh, should have been a cowboy. <laughs> uh, which wow. was really fun. I think that concert was in Cashton, Wisconsin. Uh, a big outdoor Wisconsin. venue, Wisconsin, and this. Uh, so I don't know if it was that or there was a Christian band called Whiteheart. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Wait, no, but what? listen, listen to this. But Whiteheart, Whiteheart would like sell out massive venues in, in like their their heyday, and they came to my city called Sparta, Wisconsin, population six thousand six hundred seventy seven, and <laughs> and my mom. <laughs> My mom got to chauffeur them all around all day long. And then they did a concert in the high school gymnasium and there were all of like 74 people there. It was crazy. It was so odd because I'd seen I or I, I had seen that they had like been huge. And now me and 73 other people are like watching Whiteheart do a rock show in a echoey White gym. Christian Jeez, man. Yeah, Google it. that. 
But Crack is it open the Bible? Is it because like they were on the decline of their popularity, Gosh, or just I don't this know. random gig? I I I'd have no idea. I have no. I don't know how Sparta got them. What I do remember is that the lead singer wore cowhide cowboy boots, Holstein, black and white. I mean, it was just very very perfect for the dairy community that, that I lived in. Oh, this is when I wish we were doing like a TV show right now because I would show everyone these band picks. These are 80s. I thought you were going to show everyone the boots you're currently wearing, which are similar (laughs) to the lead singer of White I wish I did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Well, on that note, we are periodically doing these episodes uh, where we're actually going to spend a little bit more time with each one of us, Jer, John, Haley, and share a little bit more about our personal piece making practices. So this week we're going to be hearing from Jer. So take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I want to do is I want to share the story and then I'll pull some things up that in reflection, you know, cause when you're living a story, I, I'm not necessarily extrapolating like what is, what, what are the lessons here along the way? But I think in, since what happened in Bend has occurred, I've had, I've had some time to reflect on it. So let me share the story and then, and then we'll talk about some of the um, some of the gold nuggets there. What, what happened was, you know, about three weeks ago here in Bend, which by the way is an 87% white community in, in a in a state, the state of Oregon that has forever been an experiment in white supremacy. So whiteness made this space, uh, it made the state, it made the city. And um, and what happened in, in this location is um, I got a text uh, on a Wednesday uh, late morning from one of the, one of my Latina friends and influencers here in the city. And she had heard there, there was a rumor swinging around that ice was in town, which isn't altogether unusual in Bend. Uh, ice has a kind of a a track record of coming into our city. Um, and they don't do raids because we don't have, uh, we don't have meat processing plants or big, huge agriculture communities of, of migrant labor. Instead, it looks more like kidnap style abductions. And then we usually hear about it in the aftermath from a family. What was different about this moment is that um, my Latina friend uh, sent me a text said, hey, there's a rumor circulating about ice vans parked in one of the most prominent hotels in the middle of the busiest district of Bend. Uh, do you know anything about it? And I just said, no, I hadn't heard anything, but I'm on my way down. <clears throat> So I jump in my uh, my vehicle and I head down and I'm just thinking like, uh, how will I know if these are ice vans? Could it be that they're actually parked in the most public space in our city that would be brazen and arrogant in the middle of the day? I get there and when I, when I arrive, it wasn't that there were two ice vans. There were two gigantic white armored and barred buses. They were like moving prisons. And they were in fact parked in uh, in the parking lot of one of our most prominent hotels. And there were two, uh, two individuals, very obviously we could see their silhouette wets in, in the bus. And so when I arrived, I was the eighth person there. So there were five other people in the parking lot. And then there were two of our neighbors on the bus. And when I showed up, uh, I had enough of a sense that this was probably ice and, uh, and they were probably abducting some of our neighbors. And so I just went up to the bus drivers and I was like, who are you guys? Who do you work for? Why are you here? Who's on the bus? What did they do? Why are your license plates from Washington rather than Oregon? Why are you parked in in our hotel in one of our hotel parking lots in the middle of the day? And um, and my questions made the drivers pretty uncomfortable. So then they got in in their vehicles and they they started to pull out. And one of our local organizers um, uh, was Facebook living the the entire experience so far, and he just he just stepped in front of the bus. And then the rest of us stepped in front of that bus, and then uh, some of us stepped behind the second bus. So we literally pinned them. So there were there were like six of us pinning in two um, two ice buses, 
And at that point, we just put the word out that this is going down in our city, uh, and we called for people to come and show up. And within about four hours, there were over a thousand people, uh, citizen allies in Bend that were that flooded into this parking lot and were putting their bodies on the line in front of these buses. What I think is really interesting as I was looking around is that this is this was not the Bend that I moved to five years ago. Uh, th- like, there's no way to consider a, hun- a thousand dominant culture, predominantly white citizen allies would show up because ICE was abducting some of our migrant neighbors. And so something has changed significantly, and I would say had changed more significantly since Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor. That was a shift point for our community where I, I began to watch people start to flood the streets and start to put some uh, some shoe leather into the game here with regard to systemic change in, in our city. Uh, but I'm looking around going, whoa, these are there's a thousand citizen allies here standing in front of ICE buses on behalf of two people that they don't even know their names, uh, probably have interacted with in the restaurant systems or whatever it is, but has no idea who these folk are. And it didn't matter to these 1,000 people. So that was really, really unique. Um, I'm a part of a clergy collective here, and there's about a dozen local faith leaders that are ecumenical and interfaith. And we've just been building relationships with the BIPOC community over the last five years, and most notably in the last three or four months through the pandemic. And we all had different roles throughout the time. So we were following our BIPOC organizers because they were leading the charge, but we were doing all the behind the scenes stuff in terms of educating the community in terms of what is happening and why is it important that we're putting our bodies in front of these buses and not moving and and what's happening in, in a legal sense. Um, and why is it important that we're delaying the movement of these buses and, and things like this? So there was, we had some of our clergy educating the crowd. We had um, some of our clergy building more strategy with our BIPOC influencers. My primary role was to collaborate with our local immigration attorney and try to negotiate with ICE because as far as we could understand, these two gentlemen had been detained early in the morning and had not received food, water, or any kind of wellness check, much less any kind of legal representation. And so we were working as hard as we could to barter with them because not only did we have the two ICE buses pinned in, but we had two ICE vehicles, like their SUVs pinned in as well. So like we're literally trying to negotiate with them that, hey, we'll release one of your vehicles if we can get food, water, and legal representation onto the bus. So like the lawyer and I are having this real-time negotiation with the ICE officers, and they just weren't interested in negotiating, which was really frustrating. Meanwhile, our immigration attorney was collaborating with some statewide uh, immigration lawyers to actually file a federal suit in the in the federal court in Portland, uh, because we began to recognize that if we could if we could get this in front of a federal judge today, at the bare minimum, we could get these gentlemen off the bus and into uh, into the care of Bend PD, uh, because up until this point, there was nobody gave us any identification of who they were, why they were there, who these men were. There were no warrants presented, nothing, which is why we just kept standing in in their way. What we found out in in, um, in the aftermath is part of the reason these uh, that ICE was not interested in negotiating is because they were in the process of mobilizing 75 federal troops from the Portland area to come to Bend uh, to get these two men, but more importantly, to get their two buses. And so uh, there was one moment I will never forget when I'm talking with the, the ICE official and she said, listen, there's nothing that I can do right now, but when my supervisor gets here, we may be able to do something. In hindsight, I recognize that her supervisor was not someone up the food chain in the bureaucracy. Her supervisor were 75 heavily armed border patrol agents who came intent on violence to actually get our neighbors out of the bus and get their buses back uh, back up to Tacoma, Washington. 
And so it was, a, it was a fascinating, you know, we're learning as we're going moment by moment, everything's shifting. We began to recognize later in the day that people were getting hungry. They were beginning to wonder, like, is this making any difference? Does this matter at all? So we began to uptick our education of the community with regard to nonviolent direct action and why not just the optics of nonviolence matters, but the ethic, the true ethic of nonviolence matters so much. We kept talking about, you know, the, the power in this moment when everybody wants to twist the the story to say that protesters are violent and law enforcement is just simply doing their job. We can't give anybody any excuse, uh, any kind of evidence that would suggest that we are out of control um, or violent. And so we kept teaching the nonviolent principles via Bullhorn uh, to 2,000 citizen allies, many of which this was their first ever action in their lives, right? It's amazing, the camaraderie. Then the songs of the abolition movement begin and the chants and the, the drum beats. And we're telling people it looks like our uh, our judicial lawsuit, um, our federal lawsuit may not be seen at all today. Uh, so we, we're going to have to hunker in and keep these buses here all through the night. And we expected droves of people to leave. Instead, people cheered and started mobilizing their folks to bring tents and sleeping bags and chairs and grills. And we were going to make it a, a, a night-long vigil. Um, so our clergy team, we began to organize local musicians and bring them in to start playing music. And um, and uh, our BIPOC allies started mobilizing migrant entrepreneurs who were donating food uh, into the process. It was just a, an amazing experience. On the flip side, it was heartbreaking. Uh, there, there was um, the two families of the two gentlemen on the bus actually came to the space and watching these these um, these women, these wives in particular, like press their ears to the bus to try to hear the sounds of their husband's voices was was a, an image that I will never, ever forget. Um, there was a moment when uh, when the organizers made a circle out of coats and umbrellas to conceal the identity of these two women. And they came into um, the middle of this concealed circle and um, and told some of the stories of these two guys and um, and pleaded with the community to stay in place because it, keep in mind, like from these two women's perspective, the only shot that their families had of staying together is if 2,000 people whose names they didn't know would stay put and block the movement of these ice buses. And then I, I'll never forget this moment when one of the wives, when she gets done pleading with the community, they escort her over to the bus and she still has the bullhorn in her hand. And in Spanish... She's screaming her words of despair and sadness and and love and hope to her loved one that was on the bus. And uh, like the sounds of her cries are one of those things that will drive me uh, to continue to do this work, I think, for the rest of my life. Uh, so it's like moments like that where as those moments were happening, I was watching a community of citizen allies be baptized in the way of nonviolent direct action. You know, they they were seeing the impact. They were beginning to understand how problematic, how broken this system really was. Um, eventually, we heard that uh, that the federal troops had arrived. Now, three weeks previous to this, I and a, a number of clergy were invited to Portland to participate in a sacred ritual there. As, as we know, so much has been happening in Portland with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement and um, and the presence of federal troops. While I was there, I got shot twice, once with a rubber bullet, once with a gas canister. I collected them as souvenirs just as a reminder of like, this is – 
This is insane that this is actually happening in the streets of our cities, right? These are the same men who are now driving in big, huge S unmarked SUVs into my city. Again, Bend, Oregon, which at, at surface level, it doesn't get much wider in country club than Bend, Oregon. And as I was Facebook living and narrating to a larger community what was going on, my, my point here was if this is happening in Bend, Oregon, this is happening in every predominantly white city in the entire country. What are we going to collect? do about this, you know? And so we had peacekeepers and, and people stationed all over the area. So to keep an eye out for the federal troops to arrive, they staged about a quarter of a mile from where we were at with the buses. Um, and then we received word via the Bend police chief that the federal agents, they were coming in and their intention was to not leave without these two gentlemen and their two buses. And so based on the fact that we had just experienced some pretty severe violence in Portland, we knew at that moment that arrest was probably a high potential Injury was probably a high potential as well. So we mobilized one of our clergy, a global immersion alumni named Morgan, who's a Presbyterian pastor here. Uh, she got back out on the bullhorn and she began to coach the community and said, here's what we're going to do. When the federal troops physically arrive, I'm going to give a signal and all of us are going to sit down. Because what we wanted was we wanted the, the image of federal troops walking in with their AR-15s and their clubs ready to crack skulls being met by 2,000 citizen allies on our knees and in a seated position, continuing to block the movement of these buses, but demonstrating that we are here non-violently to protect the dignity of our neighbors. And so that's what happened. The federal troops began to arrive. They staged in front of us. Uh, we all sat down. There was a, a line of nine clergy on our knees with our hands up holding the line and then the federal troops began to advance. And in that moment, for me personally, fear went out the window uh, because my objective became helping these federal troops remember their own humanity. And, um, and so I'm literally walking the line between the clergy on their knees and these federal troops pleading with them to remember their humanity, that we're brothers, that we're sisters, that, that systems are the things that are convincing us to see each other as threats rather than as allies and friends, you know? And I'm like literally next to these guys having this conversation. Meanwhile, a group of federal troops went around the, the opposite side of the protest and used gas, bullets, and billy clubs to remove physically remove people from the bus. They um, they abducted these two gentlemen for the second time that day and dashed off into the bushes and, um, and swiftly brought them up to Tacoma, Washington. When it was all over, 2,000 people stood in stunned silence. Uh, and I remember looking around, realizing that, that something has fundamentally transformed here in this moment. The outcome is devastating in terms of two families separated and probably irreparably separated. The silver lining, if there is one, is that 2,000 citizen allies got a taste of the power of nonviolent direct action, and they will never, ever, ever be the same. Amazing. I'll just kind of close with this. I remember um, in my time in the Bay Area, a friend of mine named Nate Milheim um, with Oakland Leadership Center told the stories of, um, of moving into the urban center of Oakland and um, and the struggle it was to actually build the kind of credibility where he was seen as an ally. One of the things that he said was, um, it took me seven years sitting in the back of the room um, to be trusted, to be given a voice. 
And as I reflect on this, it took for me, it, and I remember thinking like, that's really, that's really amazing. And seven years feels like such a long time. Now in reflection, I'm recognizing that it was five years for me of sitting in the backs of rooms and building relationships, especially with our Latinx influencers here, that led to a text message where this person had a good hunch that I would actually go to the place and figure it out, right? And so this idea that the clock is ticking right now for us, um, we're all on the clock b- building the kinds of relationships that eventually lead to us standing in front of the bulldozers that are crushing people. And if we do this work well over time, we get to bring a whole bunch of people with us and it fundamentally transforms who we're becoming. So good, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I agree. There's just so many things that you said that I um, I think are helpful for us to, to wrestle through and evaluate. And um Before Hales and I ask a few more of those questions, what are you seeing happen in the aftermath? Uh, You know, this was years of of collaboration that led to a moment like this. It was a moment, but we also hope it's more than a moment. So what's what's it looked like in the last few weeks? Yeah, I'll I'll just share three quick things. One, um, the, the clergy... The clergy in this space are being trusted by our community unlike ever before. Uh, this is a predominantly post-Christian context. And uh, and I read, I read a, a, an email from a woman who was at the protest that was sent out to us clergy. Um, and one of the things that she said is like, I have completely disqualified Christians um, from any of my affection. And uh, she said, there was a moment when the federal troops came in and I watched all of you clergy take your knee and put your hands in the air. And she said to herself, they're not leaving. They're with us. And uh, and I'm like, ah, isn't that powerful to think like for, as faith leaders, we've been duped into believing that our people are those who attend our institution rather than having a, a larger vision of being being pastors of a community and of a context and to be seen as those who are with us, especially in the terrifying, traumatizing moments. So I think that's a, that's a story I'd lift up. And then the clergy was asked by the community to help the community heal. And so we put together a vigil that was not a protest and not a, ra- a rally, but just an opportunity to remember and to grieve what it was that happened uh, a week previous. And so the, the, pa- the pastors, interfaith and ecumenical, are beginning to pastor the community community, the community is beginning to trust us. Um, Not to mention the kinds of, like it galvanizes the relationships between clergy. It galvanizes the relationship between people of faith and BIPOC influencers, you know? So it just, it strengthened the relational infrastructure such that now we get to move forward in more creative and costly ways. Something that struck me when you were in your beginning of your story, and then I feel like you looped back around to it, Jer, was that that BIPOC organizers were leading the way and the mostly white clergy were doing the behind the scenes work. And then, you know, you reference being in Ben five years before um, even getting this invitation to show up in this way, um, but still being doing the more behind the scenes work. So I think that that's an important um thing to pull out and maybe you could expand on a little bit is, is you're, you're in this context for an extended amount of time. And even when you're invited into the process, it's, you're not leading the process, you're following in it. So what has that journey been like for you? Yeah. It's been mistake ridden, you know? I mean, I, I, I feel leadership voids. I walk into a room and 
um, and can assume leadership very, very quickly. And so I made some mistakes early on here uh, to the point at which I got feedback from some statewide organizers. And when they said, like, look, you've got to back off because Bend is used to being led and catalyzed and led by white, charismatic leaders. And if anything is going to change here, it's going to change because people of color and specifically women of color are amplified. And so that really helped to change my perspective and my posture in this space, the point at which I never one time touched a bullhorn uh, d- during that event. Um, I helped, I got to help design the vigil, but I actually wasn't even in town uh, to be a part of it. You know, so it, it's like the, the, the less sexy work is to be in closed door conversations and, um, and, uh, and meals with people building the relationships over time, such that when it's go time, we actually get to leverage all of our resources to amplify the people who need to be leading. Like on that, that Wednesday, three, four weeks ago, that was the most exciting thing for me to be a part of is to recognize I will, ne- these people will never know my name but they're going to know Morgan and they're going to know Avelia and they're going to know Milagros and they're going to know Joanne and they're going to know Aaron Carter, who is our immigration lawyer because she was brilliant at what she was doing. And, you know, it was, um, it was amazing. So I, I think we have to believe we have to, we have to say that we believe that the movement, the transformation needs to be led by our BIPOC allies. But then we, I think the, the harder part is for those of us who are dominant culture used to holding the microphone and being in the seats of power to get up out of our seats, to come from behind and then begin to actually amplify those, those folk, you know? So I think my learning curve is still really high, but I can track some progress over the last five years. One of your, um, you know, we're talking about the aftermath of this and the way it's building these new networks of relationships and trust and, and also the miracle of having so many people show up in Bend, these white allies in a whole new kind of way. And something that really stands out to me, and, and I'm curious what the, the follow-up or aftermath implications of this are, is when you're describing the families of these detained men, you know, up against the window and in tears. And I think for probably many of the people there, that was the first time that they had been ground zero exposed to the plight of our migrant neighbors. Um, how might this lead the community to not just interface with them in a moment of crisis, but interface with them in everyday life. Close some of that proximity gap between the white allies and the migrant community. I'm not sure the answer to the question in in, in the long term. You know, what I know is I think John, Haley, the three of us have all had we have all had the kinds of moments where we've experienced a thing that um, it doesn't just invite us to change, it demands that we change. And what I saw on that Wednesday is like that, that's the type of thing that happened. It was so surreal. And, um, and then, you know, like the, the point of nonviolent direct action is to expose the ludicrousy of broken systems. It's to expose the cowardice behind the um, unnecessary uses of force and violence against people who have, like we had signs and bullhorns and water bottles uh, that we were drinking, you know, so like, when you have that kind of experience, it is literally like a baptism. And I don't think that we will ever see the world the same way, you know? And so in the aftermath of that, I mean, the GoFundMes for for these families and for their legal uh, for their legal battles that are ahead of them that flooded imme- were like max capacity immediately, you know? So there, there are things like that. 
But then at, the, at places like the vigil, you know, we're, we're identifying migrant entrepreneurs and we're, we're raising up the value um, of our Latinx neighbors in our community that, um, that unfortunately have been forced to hide in fear. You know, so now that we have more of a public space, what, is it, what does it look like to amplify the value that these neighbors actually contribute to our, uh, to our well-being, to our lives and, and us to them? You know, so I think now we have some voice, we have the strength of relationship. Now we get to work together to continue to lift that up. The last thing I'll say is I was in a closed door meeting with our Ben PD chief and city manager a couple days later. And one of the things that I advocated for, because my Latinx community urged me, they knew I was going into this meeting. They said, you have to, you have to fight for this. And that is in the state of Oregon on January 1st, the law is changing and undocumented migrants can qualify for a driver's permit, a driver's license. That is a huge deal. So what they wanted me to do was urge Bend PD to operate with a high level of discretion with regard to traffic violations between now and January 1st. You know, because one of the gentlemen sitting on the bus, the reason he was on the bus is because he had a traffic violation. He had the equivalent of a jaywalking ticket, which meant that he should never have been on that bus to begin with. You know, so now I think there are ways in which we can work together to actually raise up the dignity uh, of our migrant neighbors for the sense of their long-term safety uh, and stability here in this place. So, Jer, thanks for the storytelling and the experience um, on the ground in a place of... um as you described it, luxury and country clubness, the everyday peacemaking movement is at hand. And it's in that classroom of uncommon relationships that we can show up with tools of nonviolent direct action that actually free us up to participate with God in fixing all that's broken. So thanks for the story. Thanks for the practice. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know that you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts. 